just listened through the book of Daniel in the New King James Version audio Bible that I'm going through this year. And though, of course, I've read this book numerous times before, it was equal parts stirring and difficult. First stirring in those narrative portions, then difficult in the prophetic ones. The narratives are classics, providing for good reason a lot of fodder for children's Sunday school lessons. Daniel and his three friends, various efforts to live faithfully as Jewish exiles in Babylon have a lot to teach us. Daniel and the lion's den also. What does the book as a whole contribute to a biblical theology? That's going to be our theme on this episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. I'm going to talk to Dr. Joe Sprinkle, author of a recently released commentary on the book of Daniel in Lexham Press's Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary Series. Welcome to the Bible Study Magazine podcast. It's great to have with me today Dr. Joe Sprinkle, the author of this Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary put out by good old Lexham Press, in whose offices I'm standing right now, a volume on Daniel. Let me start, though, where I always do. Dr. Sprinkle, can you tell us how do you serve, how have you served, now I think you're semi-retired, uh, the body of Christ? Well, um, my primary ministry has always been teaching. I taught for 15 years at Tacoa Falls College in Georgia. I taught for 12 years at Crossroads College in uh, Rochester, Minnesota. And uh, uh, unfortunately, Crossroads College uh, went out of business about five years ago, about the time I finished uh, researching the, uh, the commentary that we're going to talk about today. But uh, since that time, I have been semi-retired, but I uh, still do some adjunct work for uh, Johnson University. I teach courses regularly for their, uh, uh, basically their uh, School of Intercultural Studies where they are training Bible translators. I teach courses in uh, Hebrew uh, as well as uh, Old Testament criticism for them. Uh, and I also am currently teaching a course for Emmaus Bible College, all of which I'm doing online. Excellent. This is a great time to be teaching online. Now, this EBTC commentary, you and I were talking just before we started the recording of the interview. Um, I actually had not realized that you completed this five years ago for the series when it was run by Broadman and Holman. And thankfully, Lexham Press came in and bought out that series, or your work might not have seen the light of day. I'm so glad that it has. We're really excited at Lexham Press to be producing this series, the EBTC. It's right up our alley. We're adding to the series now. We're trying to serve the body of Christ with an evangelical, biblical, theological commentary. I wanted to ask you the same question I'm trying to ask everybody on this season three of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. What even is biblical theology? Well, uh... There's actually a little bit of debate exactly what biblical theology is. I mean, in the simplest term, it's uh, uh, the theology taught by the Bible. Uh, but then there's different ways of going about and doing that. Uh, 
as I went into the, uh, I was invited to uh, work on the series, I, I thought of biblical theology more in terms of theology of a particular portion of the Bible. So you can talk about the theology of the Pentateuch. You could talk about the theology of Isaiah. You could talk about the theology of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, or uh, theology of Paul, and that would all be under the rubric of uh, biblical theology. Um, but others, including the uh, editors of the series, they think of it more in terms of connecting themes in a biblical book with themes that are found throughout the Bible. Um, and uh, in fact, they, they criticized some early drafts of what I was working on by saying, well, you know, I, I wasn't really doing biblical theology quite the way they, they had in, in mind because uh, I was doing it more in terms of uh, what well, my approach to uh, doing biblical theology is, is uh, initially was just to take the book of Daniel and say, well, if I had to reconstruct a theology based on Daniel, what would it look like? What does it say about God and man and relationship of God and man and history and everything that has to do with theology? If I only had the book of Daniel, what could I deduce from that? And I was writing my theology that way, although I expanded it out with the suggestions of the editors to bring in biblical themes from throughout the Bible. As So I did it my way and I did it their way at the same time, basically. That's great. You know, you're kind of answering my next question already. You know, I, I looked in the at the structure of this commentary and the biblical theological themes portion at the end, which is probably the final third of the volume, is where you get into explaining what does the book of Daniel contribute to uh, to our understanding of the Bible. And, and I want to press in on this question here about what biblical theology is by trying again to distinguish here. You've, we've kind of already started into this topic. A biblical theology commentary from other kinds of commentaries. And I want to warn you that I want to go a bit hard on you with this question, even though I know people you know, have different opinions of what biblical theology even is. I'm not going to accept easy answers. I really want some wisdom out of you. How does a biblical theology commentary differ from the other kinds of commentaries that exist? Well, there are, you know, various kinds of commentaries that exist. I mean, uh, you have... Uh, homiletical commentaries that are primarily just to assist pastors to come up with some ideas for preaching. Uh, you have uh, historical critical commentaries <clears throat> which emphasize just what the text meant, but without any particular concern really even for what the text might even mean today. Uh, but uh, what a biblical theological commentary is trying to do is, con is to, to look for those integrating themes within the book that you're studying that will connect what's said in Daniel, for example, with other themes found elsewhere in the Bible and, uh, uh, and integrate uh, the, the, the theology of Daniel and, and the themes in that with the theology of uh, the the rest of, of scripture, uh, and indeed uh, you, you'll find very few commentaries that'll have ninety pages on the theology of Daniel. I mean, the, the last ninety pages of the book are uh, the theology of Daniel. Just again, uh, doing that very thing, looking at 
what I could deduce from Daniel itself, if that's all I had, and then of the things that I deduce from Daniel itself, how does that connect with earlier books of the Bible and later books of the Bible and and try to uh, integrate the theology of Daniel into uh, those broad archetypal themes uh, throughout Scripture? As a preacher myself, and up until quite recently, when for various providential reasons, my church actually closed last Sunday, I was an assistant pastor and I was preaching through Bible books when I could, I preached through the Sermon on the Mount. It took me a little while, I preached through the book of Ruth. And I really wanted and needed the commentators that I was relying on in my very limited prep time as a, you know, kind of tri-vocational uh, minister. I wanted them to help me with theology and with application, with drawing together the threads of whatever, you know, narrow passage I was studying with what the rest of the Bible was teaching and then ultimately with what people should do about it. So I think it's a very healthy move in commentaries to see a lean toward, let's not just make observations, explanations of the text, but let's try to synthesize what the text is saying with the rest of Scripture and try to draw applications from there. So, so let's drill down there. If we're trying to do that with the book of Daniel, what would be missing from a truly biblical theology if Daniel somehow fell out of all our Bibles? What does it contribute? One of the things that uh, struck me that it contributes is that it gives us a theology of history. You know, one of the questions is, where is history going? And of course, there's, you know, been different answers given. You know, Eastern religions say, well, history is an endless cycle, isn't really going anywhere. Uh, you have uh, people like uh, Henry Ford, who supposedly said when he asked, uh, you know, what is history? Well, uh, History is just one damn thing after another. History is bunk. Uh, you know, not not go, not going anywhere. Uh, not, uh, but but uh, God has a plan for history. God has uh, set forth the uh, the guidelines through which history is going to lead to the end. Uh, the end being the coming of uh, Christ and the kingdom of God uh, at the uh, end of the age. And uh, everything is working towards that in, in, its, in its own way. I enjoyed reading through your exposition. And if I had stopped there, I still would have gotten some comments of, uh, in, of synthesis like this. They, they can't be avoided. But the last third of the book, those last 90 pages where you really get into expounding the themes like you just did, I found to be an essential part of what the commentary is trying to do. I did have and a I question. I think that would be very helpful for preachers, too, as, as they're uh, thinking about how to preach through Daniel. Um, you know, the, the, the end of each, each uh, section of the exposition does have uh, you know, some themes but it gives more detail and will link to the uh, biblical theology at the end uh, that would allow you to elaborate and integrate that into the whole of Scripture. And that word integrate was my question. I, I'm not trying to be critical here. I actually, I think you did it the right way, and I'm sure you were also responding to editors, but why not integrate what's in that final portion of the volume with the commentary proper, the exegesis portion? Well, um, 
as for how why I did it the way I did it, in in one sense, is uh, dependent upon the editors who told me how how the book was going to be structured. Uh, so uh, you know, writers don't always have a whole lot of leeway. They're they're told, well, this is the pattern for this series that we would like to do. Uh, but uh, to, to uh, speak for them, uh, although they could speak for themselves better than I, uh, if you d- did it the way that you suggest, uh, uh, integrating all those uh, themes in, well, then you'd have a lot of things kind of uh, intertwined throughout the book. Whereas by putting putting uh, the biblical theology themes together at the end, I can take uh, themes that you have, for example, in... Uh, Daniel chapter two, which has ex- uh, uh, eschatological uh, uh, themes of you know how history is going to go with the four kingdoms of Daniel, but then Daniel seven will talk about uh, much the, the same sorts of things, and uh, you can integrate uh, those uh, themes together into one discussion, as opposed to uh, doing it piecemeal in Daniel two and piecemeal in Daniel seven and various other places where these themes come up. Uh, so it, it's helpful in that regard, and uh, I, I hope that readers will will find it uh, helpful too to have it all put together. Not not that there's not elements of it throughout the commentary, uh, but you have a more detailed version of it, uh, a more integrated version of it at the end. I think this is a reflection of the kind of revelation that God has given us in Daniel and throughout the Old Testament, where you have this mixture of genres. And the narrative genre and the poetic genres, Hebrew parallelism itself tend to echo thoughts, right? These themes keep coming up over and over again. So to get full coverage of what Daniel has to reveal about God's sovereignty and about the timeline of history, you have to pull it all together. And I've seen commentaries where the writer will point you back to a previous discussion, and that can get a little bit awkward. I think it's actually very efficient the way the editors set it up there. Now, in your commentary, you wrote, Probably in no book outside of the Pentateuch do traditional conservative scholars and critical scholars differ as sharply as they do over the book of Daniel. Why is this? And what view do you take of the book's authorship and date? Okay, well, uh, first of all, I'll just explain the difference. Uh, uh, Traditional conservatives uh, believe that Daniel is a historical person who... uh, gave genuine predictive prophecy, uh, whose predictive prophecies come true, um, and that uh, he uh, is certainly responsible for the autobiographical portion of the book, which is uh, Daniel 7 through 12, um, but that uh, the other part, which may have been written, I think, by uh, some of his disciples uh, in third-person narration about him, there's a discussion on that, uh, that uh, whether or not Daniel wrote that part, uh, that it represents accurate uh, historical narrative as to what Daniel said and did. Uh, whereas uh, the uh, critical view, the liberal view, uh, takes an entirely different view of the book. Uh, they would say that Daniel is basically a fictional character, that uh, either there was no Daniel, or at least the stories that we have about Daniel are folklore and not accurate history, and that the prophecies uh, in the book 
are not genuine predictions for the most part, but were actually history written in the guise of prophecy. In other words, it was uh, written by someone who lived after all the events of the uh, uh, Babylonian and Persian and Greek empires came, and uh, they put into the mouth of Daniel prophecies about what would happen during those periods, but actually they were writing history in, uh, uh, in, in, instead of prophecy, but they, they, it's in the guise of prophecy. Uh, and uh, that, that point of view uh, sometimes refers to what Daniel did as a, a pious fraud. In other words, that it uh, uh, represents Daniel as having predicted all these things and these things have come true. Uh, but in fact, uh, he did not write uh, those things and the predictions in them, uh, insofar as they come true, uh, were actually written after the events had already happened. Uh, well, that's a rather stark difference between some of the most remarkable predictive prophecy in the Bible, which is the traditional conservative view, versus uh, uh, history in the guise of prophecy, prophecy after the fact. Right, and the very message of the book is radically altered when you either have in the liberal, you know, higher critical view, uh, a guy who, well, whoever wrote this is putting predictive prophecy back into the mouth of, you know, a previous fictional figure, or you have the God of all history who's telling at Daniel's day what's going to happen. If you have a God like that, you're going to have to submit to him and that's why the traditional conservative view, right, is we've got to take it that way. We've got to submit to the kind of revelation that God has given us. Now, the series preface, in which I detect strong notes of Jim Hamilton, who I also <laughs> interviewed for the podcast, says, biblical theology involves a close study of the use of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. How mm -hmm. does Daniel itself use the Old Testament? Well, the place where that comes up uh, most uh, uh, significantly uh, is in Daniel chapter 9, the prayer of Daniel. Uh, there, there's other places, too, that where it comes up. But uh, um, actually, if you were to look at page uh, 348 of uh, the book, I... I have a section on in the biblical theological themes where I do uh, what's called intertextuality of Daniel 9 with uh, other parts of uh, the book of Daniel, uh, other parts of the Old Testament, I should say. Uh, in particular, in Daniel 9, Daniel was meditating on uh, the prophet Jeremiah in uh, Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah uh, 29, uh, who gives a prophecy of a 70-year Babylonian uh, captivity. And, uh, you know, Daniel apparently did a little bit of calculation in his head. Well, he went into exile oh, around 604, and uh, this is the first year of Cyrus, which is the year 539, 538. Well, that's, you know, 66 years or so, and uh, that, that's pretty close to 70, and so, you know, this period of Jeremiah must be over, and so he prays this prayer in which he echoes at several points the language of Jeremiah. Uh, so in verse 3, he, uh, um, 
obeyed Jeremiah's call to pray and seek for God for restoration. That's what Jeremiah asked them to do in Jeremiah 29, 12 through 14. Um, he uses the language, you know, that God keeps his gracious covenant, which is actually alluding to Deuteronomy 9, uh, 7 and verse 9, uh, and that uh, we have sinned and done uh, uh, wrong and acted wickedly. There he's quoting from uh, 1 Kings 8 and verse 4. And so he quotes from Kings, he quotes from Jeremiah, he uh, alludes to the uh, warnings of, uh, you know, if you disobey God that you would go into exile. Uh, that's found in the law of Moses and uh, uh, Leviticus uh, 26, and also in Deuteronomy uh, 28. And so there's all kinds of points in which he is uh, explicitly either quoting or alluding to the ideas uh, found in the earlier biblical books, which uh, tell you something about his idea of uh, the inspiration of those earlier uh, biblical writings. Right. Now, Daniel is a fairly late book, so does it get used in the Old Testament? If not, how about in the New Testament? Well, it's not used in any other book of the Old Testament. It is used uh, in the intertestamental period, and I believe First and Second Maccabees alludes back to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and, uh, and the like. Uh, uh, that would be in a Catholic Old Testament, but not in our Protestant Old Testament. Uh, but it does have um, a number of uh, allusions in the New Testament. The only place where he's referred to by name is uh, when Jesus uh, refers to Daniel. Uh, that's in uh, Matthew 24, 15. Uh, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then you who are in Judea flee to the mountains and so forth. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, there he quotes uh, from uh, a phrase that's used several times in Daniel, the abomination of desolation. Right. And refers to it as being fulfilled well first of all he refers to daniel as if he's a real person right uh and uh, uh second uh, he refers to that prophecy as having a fulfillment beyond jesus's day and again uh, the critical scholars want everything fulfilled in the time of the maccabees uh during the time of antiochus yeah. fourth uh but uh jesus saw in it a prophecy that's uh, fulfilled um after his own day, uh, uh, and that, that's, uh, you know, one place uh, where it's uh, used. Uh, another place where Daniel shows up is in the book of Revelation. Right. Now, in Daniel chapter 7, you have uh, the vision of four beasts coming out of the sea. Um, and... Uh, one was like a lion, one was like a bear, one was like a leopard, one was indescribably terrible. Uh, and then, of course, the one like the Son of Man comes uh, to uh, uh, destroy. Uh, well, not only that, you have the, uh, out of the fourth beast uh, comes uh, a little horn mm -hmm. um, and, and the like. Well, that same imagery uh, gets used in Revelation chapter 13, where it talks about uh, the beast, and it uses actually all the imagery of Daniel, uh, 
describing the beast as in some ways like a bear and some things like a lion and in some ways uh, like a leopard and having, you know, uh, ten horns and just like the fourth beast of uh, Daniel has ten horns, uh, that little horn, which uh, seems to be the Antichrist figure. And, and Daniel is uh, very clearly being used by uh, John in Revelation to uh, express uh, his own prophecy. And indeed, uh, I would argue that you can't fully understand Revelation without understanding Daniel, since he's alluding to right. Daniel. Uh, this whole, uh, you know, the beast in, in Daniel is, uh, is drawing directly on uh, Daniel's uh, prophecy. Right. If, as in a traditional conservative view that I absolutely take, the Bible is inspired speech from God, you know, revealed through the personalities and experiences of the biblical writers, then it's essential for us to look at how the New Testament regards the different books of the Old Testament. And it's sort of like with Jonah, where it, when Jesus says, you know, um, uh, it, I'm going to give you the sign of the prophet Jonah, and you know the 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 men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Um, for that illustration to make sense, that repentance has to be actual. It has to be historical, not just a literary device. I would say same thing with Jesus' use of Daniel and certainly of Revelation's use of Daniel. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit, and I'm just going to have to openly admit there was something I didn't understand in the preface. I was sort of hoping you'd explain it to me. Um, so this is not your responsibility if, in fact, it just doesn't mean anything. But I think Jim Hamilton, or whoever wrote the preface, said that the commentator permits a discussion between the commentary proper and the biblical theology it reflects by a series of cross-references. What does that mean? Tell you the truth, um, I wrote my commentary before I ever heard that statement. <laughs> so, so um, I know what how I it is. Uh, yeah, what I what I presume uh, it means is that, uh, uh, and again, uh, Jim Hamilton would be uh, uh, probably the one to ask what he meant by that. But uh, what I presume it means is that what we're trying to do is to uh, connect the teaching of Daniel with those broader theological themes. And so what cross-reference will, will, in your Bible will do is that they will uh, give you a reference to other parts of uh, the Bible uh, that has a similar theme, and we're trying to bring that out. Uh, you don't just have to look it up yourself, but uh, what page is that on? Oh, I got it on page 252. I see C section 3.4 which is that little little section, uh, like two S's kind of intertwined, points right, us well, back that, to 3.4 yeah, yeah. and the biblical two. theological themes. Correct. Yeah. Okay. There is an answer, and that solves it. In fact, that shows the efficiency of this commentary, that you can focus on the exegesis proper, which in my practice, I don't know, maybe in yours too, tends to be the first chronological stage. It's not as if we are not thinking about theology at all. We always bring a theology of some sort to the text. But I am trying to focus on what does this tree in the forest say before I start to relate it to the forest. And so it's yeah. appropriate that we start with exegesis and then we end up with theology. And I, and I did both. Um, there's a lot of detailed exegesis. Um, 
including references to uh, cognates and Akkadian. You know, one of the things I did at Hebrew Union when I studied there was study Akkadian. And uh, so I, I think along the lines of, well, how does that relate to the ancient Near Eastern culture? Uh, and and uh, bringing bringing out uh, you know maybe loan words that are in both Hebrew and in uh, or Aramaic and in uh, uh, Akkadian or loan words that are both in the Aramaic of Daniel and in Old Persian or uh, words that are in uh, uh, Aramaic. There's even a few that are derived from Greek uh, that comes into discussion of the introduction. Interesting. Um, those, those are all uh, things that uh, I did, and that's kind of you know getting down to the uh, you know looking at the tree. Uh, but then, right. then always at the end of every chapter, at least, and uh, certainly in the biblical theology section at the end, we're we're zooming back out and looking at the at the entire forest, and not getting stuck on the level, just looking at uh, what bumps are on the tree. Uh, so, so, so I do a bit of both, but uh, but we try to try to be kind of a both and here, very exegetical and yet very. Uh, integrative uh, so that I think uh, both a scholar can read it and, uh, you know, glean insights from it. And also uh, even a lay person could read around some of the more arcane discussions and, uh, and still get, uh, you know, plenty out of it. I, I've now reached the ripe old age of 41, which enables me, uh, it gives me permission to repeat stories. And so I've probably told this story before on the podcast. I apologize to listeners, but I had a friend once who said to me, you know, why, why are you doing this PhD stuff? <clears throat> and I said, well, you know, I, I kind of have it in mind that I'd like to at least be able to gather the tools and skills necessary to write a commentary on a New Testament book. I was a New Testament PhD uh, student. And this friend said, oh, writing commentaries, I can't think of anything more boring. So I just I just want everybody to hear here that the, the amount of work that goes into this, it really is incredible. Old Testament studies is different because cognate languages are just not nearly as important, effectively not important when it comes to Koine Greek. We've got so much Koine Greek from outside the New Testament that it's really easy with just very few exceptions to look at how a given word was used outside of the New Testament. The exceptions would be coinages like arsenokoites, you know, words that Paul, say, invented. Whereas in Biblical Hebrew, right? The reason you have to study Akkadian and Ugaritic and look for loan words is that there are words that appear only once or twice in obscure passages and, you know, poetry and Job. And our best hint as to what these words mean can only come from checking these cognate languages. I just want everybody to recognize the amount of work that goes into serving the church with commentaries like this. So anyway, I, I could just kind of say thank you. That sets me up for my next question, Dr. Sprinkle. And I am with Joe Sprinkle here on the Bible Study Magazine podcast, author of the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary Volume on Daniel. This commentary, because of its roots in uh, the uh, in Brahman and Holman, used the Christian Standard Bible as the English base text. Did you ever end up needing to disagree with the CSB in any place in your commentary, Dr. Sprinkle? I might make a comment before that, that before the CSV, there was the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Right. And I was, actually, I was actually one of the translators of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Excellent. I did the uh, very first draft of uh, Genesis 1 through 27, 
and the entire uh, second draft of uh, the book of Leviticus, the entire book of Leviticus. Uh, so um, that's probably the reason the editors thought of using me as you know one of their uh, your, their writers, uh, because it's a series based on uh, that particular translation tradition of which I was one of the translators, although I didn't do anything on Daniel. Uh, actually, most of my scholarly work has been on Old Testament law rather than uh, books like Daniel. But uh, but nonetheless, I was I was delighted when they offered it uh, uh, to me. Um, but uh, as a translator, uh, no two, two translators are ever going to translate exactly the same way. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, you know, unless I did my you're first... one of the translators of the Septuagint, which, according to legend, actually went to seventy separate rooms or seventy-two, depending on the legend, the version of the legend, and translated the entire Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, and came out with identical copies. But that's that, not what happened with the CSB, right? Uh, that would have to be a miracle. Uh, yeah. Because uh, uh, in the in the real world, you know, translators disagree all the time. And indeed, uh, you know, my first draft, uh, you know, went through, I think they had about six layers of editing for the original Holman Christian Standard. Wow. And only occasionally do I recognize any kind of distinctive contribution that I made back what is what sure. Genesis uh, uh, 224 man will leave his father and mother and uh, I, I suggested the rendering bond to his wife instead of cleave uh, and um, that one survived that's one of the few really innovative ones that I threw out that uh, that survived uh, so you know certainly there, there's going to be places where, um uh, I might come to a different conclusion. Uh, for example, in Daniel chapter 5, there, there's a problem of uh, uh, Belshazzar. Um, because it says of Belshazzar that Belshazzar was uh, the, uh, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or that Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's father. And that's a bit of a historical problem because, as a matter of fact, uh, Belshazzar was actually the son of a man by the name of Nabonidus, and Nabonidus was not biologically related to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and so uh, that's one of the things that liberals point to that say, that, oh, you know, Daniel has historical errors, and that just proves that he's not writing at the time. Um, but anyway, one way of resolving that, and uh, the Christian Standard Bible adopted this reading, is to translate the Hebrew word ab, which is normally translated father, as in Abba in the New Testament, for you New Testament scholars. Uh, uh, Abba's Aramaic, uh, but, um, and it would be Abba actually in Daniel 5. That's the Aramaic part of Daniel. Uh, but uh, you have... Uh, a suggestion that you have a few usages of the word father being used in the sense of predecessor. And so they suggested translating it not as uh, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, but rather Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor. And that would resolve the conflict historically between Nabonidus not being a son of Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Belshazzar. Uh, well, he would be Nebuchadnezzar's predecessor, but not his, his father. Um, my own solution to this is a little different. I, um, I take the view that, uh, well, father does mean father in the biological sense, but 
Uh, father in Old Testament can mean uh, ancestor, like, you know, speaking about our father Abraham. Well, there's a right. few generations in between Abraham and the Jews of uh, later periods, but they still refer to Abraham as their father. And a good case, uh, at least a reasonable case, can be made that that uh, Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar through uh, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. So Nebuchadnezzar had a daughter. She married Nabonidus. They had a child by the name of Belshazzar. And so he would be a father in the sense of a grandfather, Although not on his father's side, it would be on his his mother's side. So, um, if you take that view, then the traditional rendering, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, your father or grandfather, if you'd rather, uh, would make perfectly good sense. But they they adopted the uh, uh, another view, uh, which the is predecessor, predecessor view, yeah. Um, which you know, I yeah. I can understand, and I, it might be right. You know, that, that's one of the things about. Uh, exegesis, you learn to be a little bit humble. Uh, that well, you know, there's these views, and they're all kind of reasonable. And uh, I kind of prefer this one, but uh, I can't totally rule out the other one a lot of times. So, um, right. Uh, I think so. Anyway, that, that would be one, that would be one point where I disagreed. That's an important uh, rule for exegesis, right? I mean, God could have inspired a commentary you know, maybe the EBTC and given it to us along with the Bible to let us know the answers to some of these interpretive conundrums, you know, how to resolve Bible difficulties. But rather than picking one option and saying it has to be, the, this has to be the only way, it's actually helpful to have scholars like you working on various viable options. I, I just have to make a quick comment here too that I grew up in the King James only world. That's where I was in high school. And in that world, our perspective on people who made new Bible translations was that they were all trying to undermine the truth of Scripture as found in the King James Version. People who've listened to the podcast have heard me talk about this before, but just I want everybody to hear. Here is a biblical scholar who worked very hard to serve the church in this commentary and on the HCSB. And he, though he didn't support the uh, view that uh, the word means predecessor, father means predecessor there, which is one conservative way to resolve the difficulty, he came up with another conservative option, which still uh, preserves uh, biblical inerrancy and explains how this might have occurred. So sure doesn't sound like you're a liberal trying to undermine the truth of God's word. It sounds like you're trying to pastorally with your scholarly gifts teach the church. Another shift of gears. I actually just listened through Daniel in my audio version of the New King James Version. And it was rather jarring for me anyway to go from the easy to understand narrative portions of the book, chapters one through six, to what you and others call the apocalyptic portions, chapters nine through 12. And you said in your commentary that the narratives as a whole have a didactic function, teaching the people of God how to live in a hostile Gentile environment. The series preface for the EBTC series says that the ultimate purpose of this set of volumes is not exclusively or even primarily academic. Rather, they said, we seek to relate biblical theology to our own lives and to the lives of the church. So all that to say, what does Daniel have to say to Christians today living in hostile cultural environments? Both sections of Daniel taken together, what does it have to say to those Christians? Well, let's uh, start off with the narrative uh, part of Daniel. And um, 
we are increasingly uh, moving into a culture where I think we can relate to the type of environment that uh, Daniel and, and his uh, three friends uh, were thrown into, uh, where they're in a culture that is somewhat hostile to their uh, core religious beliefs, um, and how are we to function uh, in a world that is uh, hostile in that way? Um, for example, in the very first chapter, the, uh, the issue comes up, well, uh, that they are being trained to be administrators uh, uh, under, Nebuchadnezzar, under King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but they're being asked to do things that violated their uh, Jewish scruples, to eat uh, foods uh, that, according to uh, the law, would be uh, prohibited. Exactly what kind of foods and why, uh, you know, is it? Is it foods that uh, were in the list of unclean uh, meat that was, uh, you know, not uh, sacrificed to uh, the Lord, uh, or um, whether it was uh, maybe offered to idols before being served to them? There's some debate on that, but in any case, uh, how do you deal with that, those problems? And uh, they didn't just, you know, out and out say we're not going to cooperate at all. Uh, they they didn't say when they were told to study, you know. Uh, the uh, language and literature of the Babylonians. They didn't say, oh, you know, we're, we're Jews, we can't study, uh, you know, right. the Babylonian creation story like Enuma Elish or uh, uh, dream, uh, uh, dream books, which uh, were among the things they were likely to have studied. Uh, uh, they were willing to do a lot of things. They were willing to uh, serve in a administration of a pagan king. They were willing uh, to learn the language and literature, and indeed Daniel excelled at that above all his uh, contemporaries. Uh, but right. they were willing to draw a line and say, well, there are certain things that we, we will not do. Uh, they were not uh, willing to uh, you know, eat these foods, which uh, violated their conscience. Uh, but they uh, negotiated with uh, their captors in order to uh, you know, find a resolution. Well, uh, let's do a little experiment, uh, he said to the guard. Uh, uh, we'll eat vegetables and uh, uh, you'll give us 10 days and see if, um, uh, if we're healthy. And uh, if, if so, well, you know, go ahead and do that. And, um, and they were able to negotiate their way through. And that's you know, something we're having to learn to do. You know, how do we maintain our Christian conscience in a society which is uh, right. increasingly uh, hostile to uh, Christian sorts of things? Of course, the same thing in uh, Daniel chapter 3 with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, being told to worship the uh, uh, statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had set up, that uh, whether it represent the king or uh, the pagan god Marduk, it certainly represents kind of a deified state. And uh, how do we uh, deal with a, a culture which is increasingly wanting to deify uh, the state and, and force uh, even Christians to uh, submit uh, to it? And um, again, they, uh, in their case, uh, they were asked to do something they were simply unwilling to do, and they were willing to die for it if necessary. And um, yeah, that's excellent. You, you made something really click in my mind here. We've got a situation in which God's people were exiles. And they couldn't not know that because Daniel was actually born in Judah, uh, probably mm -hmm. in Jerusalem, if I recall correctly. And he's physically taken over to Babylon. He knows he's in exile. One of my concerns and one of the things that I think that your uh, theological themes in the back here address 
is that American Christians go too quickly past the description that First Peter gives of us as precisely exiles, because we were born here. And it's not wrong, like Paul, who took advantage of his Roman citizenship and demanded that the law be followed so he didn't have to be scourged, you know, 39 times or whatever. Um, there are ways that our citizenship here in the United States can be used as a benefit, but we cannot forget that we have more in common, I personally think, with Daniel in his exile than, than we do, uh, you know, we can't identify so fully with uh, American citizenship that we let it outrank our heavenly and more important citizenship. And therefore, Daniel, in multiple places in the book, has lessons to teach us. You've had some good lessons to teach us, Dr. Sprinkle, through this interview time. Really grateful for your work. I personally will be turning to it whenever I study through or potentially teach through Daniel. I think that uh, this discussion will help people understand the nature and purpose of the commentary and how to use it effectively. And I hope people will get this nice Lexum Press hardback or get the Logos Bible software version. Um, thank you for joining us, Dr. Sprinkle, for the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. First Peter 2, 11 to 12 in the CSB reads, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. I'm really asking myself as I reflect on this conversation with Dr. Joe Sprinkle, author of this commentary on Daniel, am I prepared to live as an exile in my own home American culture? Where do I need to push back against my culture's expectations due to Christian scruples or direct Bible commands? And where can and should I learn from the wisdom of the Babylonians who happen to be the cultural elites in my particular time and place? I think, for example, of the great deal that I've learned from decidedly non-Christian writers. I'm very much open as a Christian exile to learning from smart people who disagree with me over essential issues. I can plunder the Egyptians. There's a degree to which the New Testament holds out the hope that honorable conduct among such Babylonians will win for me their praise, even if it's silent and grudging. But there's also a degree to which both Daniel and the New Testament, including Jesus himself, teach that those who live as faithful exiles, faithful to Yahweh, are going to be told to bow down to images. They're going to be tossed into fiery furnaces and into lion's dens. Will I pray faithfully as Daniel did, even when it means physical pain? God help us all to hear and then obey the biblical theological themes of the book of Daniel. Ultimately, no one will stay God's hand, Daniel 4.35 tells us. No one's going to say to him, what are you doing? Remember that when the Babylonians come calling, no one can stop God. Babylon is destroyed in Revelation. Babylon the Great will be a heap of smoking ruins. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Bible Study Magazine helps you study the Bible with the best tools. And one of the best tools for Bible study is the concept of biblical theology. Join us for other season three interviews on that very theme.